This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Well, welcome to our, our podcast, Pulmonary Embolism, the Killer Clot in the Lungs. With me today is uh, my co-host, Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, who's um, uh, Chief of Interventional Cardiology at uh, UAB. We have also Dr. David McGiffin, uh, Chief of uh, Cardiac Surgery Program at the Alfred Hospital in uh, Australia. And we are going to discuss today a problem that has been uh, quite uh, common, particularly in this area of COVID, uh, where we've had a lot of um, patients that have had problems with uh, pulmonary embolism. We know that it's quite, uh, it's quite a frequent problem, almost a million cases per year, just in the U.S. alone, with, uh, and it could be quite dangerous because a quarter of the patient present a sudden death, and up to a third of the patient, will uh, the outcome will ultimately be fatal. Um, there's a lot of data coming out with this um, COVID uh, virus, COVID-19, uh, indicating that there is a tendency to form blood clots in the body. Um, there is some report of uh, 19 to 40 percent of patients hospitalized on the ventilators developing pulmonary embolism. And there's even some other reports of uh, patients presenting in the emergency room already with the presence of uh, blood clots in their lungs at the time of presentation. So, Mustafa, let's start with um, with defining what is a pulmonary embolism and, and how does it all start? So pulmonary embolism is basically a clot in the lungs. And this is a very common diagnosis. A lot of very famous people have uh, died suddenly of this and usually starts in the leg where it starts as something called a DVT. These are very common diagnoses, um, very common causes of death in the U.S., uh, one of the most common causes of death in the in the world when it comes to cardiovascular deaths, uh, pulmonary embolism. And a clot usually forms in the leg and travels up through the heart, goes through the right side of the heart up into the lungs and basically dislodges there. And when it dislodges in the lungs, it basically creates a bottleneck. So the heart's trying to pump out into the lungs, but suddenly this big clot is in the way which places a lot of stress and strain on the right side of the heart, which is trying to keep up. And in the cases of embolism, this can be fatal. It can cause your heart to stop. It can cause dangerous arrhythmias. And it can cause blood pressure to drop to dangerously low levels. The spectrum of pulmonary embolism is large. You know, most of the ones we see are very small. They'll turn up in the emergency department or to their primary care doctor, short of breath, maybe had some leg swelling, maybe didn't before that. And as part of the workup, uh, a scan, typically a CT scan is performed. You may see a relatively small clot and there's no heart strain. There's no um, other obvious collateral damage and those things usually resolve with, with blood thinner. And, you know, the largest pulmonary embolisms will cause sudden death the second the, second the uh, clot goes and dislodges into the lung. So, Musafa, uh, tell me, why does a clot form? And can you discuss with us this triad? Yeah, you know, historically, um, rather simply, one of the things we learn in medical school is this, I guess it's Verkau's triad, um, which is, you know, inflammation, um, increased clotting, and decreased blood flow um, through there. And let's talk about that from a simple to understand way. So what predisposes people to clots? Um, let me tell you about some of the recent cases we've seen uh, in the COVID era, um, ironically. So I'll tell you about a recent case where someone had had knee surgery or they'd actually broke their knee and gone for knee surgery, but they were put in a brace. And it was COVID time. So, you know, this is, I'm talking right at the beginning of COVID time where there was, it was very difficult to see a doctor. I don't know if everyone remembers those first two weeks where the world kind of shut down. 
And so this patient got put in a brace and there wasn't much follow-up. And so about six weeks later, this patient presents into hospital. And that patient had basically not been able to get any medical care since that time and sat at home for six weeks in a brace. Their leg hadn't been fixed because it was very hard to get into hospitals at that time. And it turns out they had, you know, developed a huge clot all the way through the leg, all the way up into the lungs. And it was a difficult situation to deal with. But when we talk about the triad, you know, firstly, they'd broken the leg and there's the inflammatory response that goes around the body, potentially to the inner lining of the blood vessels, which cause that. The, you know, the stasis, which is they had basically been sitting immobile and that can lead to increased chance of clotting and decreased flow of the blood through there. And so that's the perfect storm when it comes to a try, you know, an injury. Um, other things that can cause people to clot are so so injuries such as breaks, uh, injuries such as uh, sports injuries where people may get bruised, um, periods of inactivity where people may be forced to be inactive for prolonged periods of time. You know, the classic, um, not as common as we think, but common is, you know, long plane flight. If you were to go and see Dr. McGiff in Australia, um, you know, you'd, you'd basically spend 16 to 24 hours on a plane or something like that. So if you've already got another couple of those factors going on and then you're immobile, things like that, you know, you, you, those are the kind of questions you ask. And then medications that can increase the chance of clotting. The oral contraceptive pill is, an, is a classic when it comes to that. And a number of other medicines that can cause increased um, clotting. And so really all of it focuses around what are the, what, you know, thrombus formation and blood being thin in the body is an ongoing process. It's not like suddenly a thrombus just decides to form. There's always this two systems working in the body, homeostasis. One is trying to break the blood down and keep it thin at all times. One is trying to make sure it's not too thin and, and make sure that when you're injured, it can clot a little bit. And so you've got this really finely tuned system that goes on. And really, when you think about it, it's what are the factors that can prevent that system or which, which factors can tilt it too far to the side of clotting? Those are the kind of risk factors for, for the pulmonary embolism to fall. Looks like there's something special with COVID patient. I mean, one of the studies showed they had about 50% of the patients already in the emergency room at the time of admission. We ended up testing positive for COVID, had PTEs, you know, had pulmonary emboli already. I mean, is this inflammation that is going on, uh, you know, concerning their arteries or veins? Uh, you know, I mean, these patients are just presenting to the emergency room already with, you know, clots. You know, COVID is, um, the COVID uh, experience has been interesting. So when we first started this, I remember there was a wealth of um, early experience shared from the Chinese. And they, they were really trying to hammer down on this clot. And, and one of the things they were trying to highlight was these heart attacks that weren't classic heart attacks. So really it was just tiny bits of clot potentially ending up in the end of the coronary arteries causing heart attacks, but not like the ones we typically would treat. We'd go in and take some pictures and there was no major blockage. And it was very confusing time because the, the heart tracing would look like there was a major blockage. And there was this, there still is this whole new layer of thinking that's been put on, but I can tell you of at least three or four heart attacks I personally have taken and could not explain a thing, but the patient was doing very badly, but then ended up going up into the lungs, taking a picture of the lungs called a pulmonary angiogram and just seeing huge amounts of clot and then ending up treating the clot as the cause of the patient doing bad. Um, recently saw a young, healthy person who, very athletic, um, in their you know, 20s, who had been hospitalized with a COVID, very clear COVID throughout the lungs. and But the heart itself was very weak, pumping at only about 20%, a process people would call myocarditis. But what was really strange is despite this patient being on blood thinner throughout the hospitalization, it was the biggest clot I've ever seen inside a heart. It was so big, it basically took the whole heart up. 
and it grew, it doubled or tripled in the size of two to three weeks. That's despite being on doses of blood thinner. So there is a lot of unknown to that. And so when, it, when we're talking about pulmonary embolism, there's almost uh, no doubt, or there's very little experiential doubt that um, there's, it's one of those things that predisposes people to clotting. So if, you know, one of the most common diagnoses in the US anyway, now you throw COVID on top, there's almost, if you were to scan all these people in their chest, I mean, you'd see, you'd, you'd see a bunch of clot. We're seeing that. Um, but, you know, studies, st- no doubt studies are ongoing that will look at that. It will not be surprising at all to see a huge increase in the incidence of pulmonary embolism and DVTs in the leg. You know, when you talk about pulmonary embolism, you have to talk about DVT in the same setting. That's where it starts and goes up to. Typically, Mustafa, how do these patients present, you know, with pulmonary embolism? The whole spectrum. Um, you'll see some patients that turn up to the doctor and say, I'm just feeling a bit fatigued and I'm short of breath. And as part of their workup, maybe some lab testing and on further, on further kind of history taking, they'll end up, you know, having had some potential leg swelling or something else or undergoing treatment for cancer or on some kind of predisposing medication. And you'll find out that mild outpatient shortness of breath, you'll get a CT scan or, or a VQ scan, which is kind of a, another way of looking at the presence of uh, clot in the lung. Um, they'll show a pulmonary embolism. And then you'll get the patient that really is a little bit more short of breath than usual over the last one to two weeks, has noticed that they're used to, you know, they can't climb the stairs as well as they could anymore. But really just enough to say, you know what, the people that wouldn't usually see a doctor will certainly go and see a doctor because they're worried. Often they'll present and say, gosh, um, you know, they're worried about have they had a heart attack or something like that. Um, an echocardiogram may be performed, which is an ultrasound scan of the heart and that might show increased heart strain on the right. It may not, but again, blood tests, you know, a combination of a dimer blood test, which is one of those things that looks for clotting breakdown. It's not the perfect blood test for PE, but it's one of the ones we use. And that in combination with the clinical history would lead you to go and get the test, which suggests a clot. And, you know, bear in mind, even though we often admit these people to hospital, most of these can be treated as an outpatient. You just start the patient on blood thinner, send them home. And these people will do well over time, keep the blood thinner going uh, and keep an eye on things. And then you get the patients that uh, turn up uh, arresting. Uh, Dr. McGiffin's on the line. I remember, you know, uh, very early in my experience, there was a patient that uh, came into the emergency department. The blood pressure just went to nothing. The heart rate was uh, going through the roof. I remember calling Dr. McGiffin at like two o'clock in the morning just just uh, wondering what was going on and seeing what to do next. And, you know, we talked through it. He was a very suspicious uh, of a pulmonary embolism. And he actually came into the emergency department uh, down there and put someone on ECMO, which saved their life, um, which turned out to be a massive pulmonary embolism. And so you've got the whole spectrum of a little bit of shortness of breath, uh, fatigue, tiredness, uh, right-sided heart failure, people that are have passed out, because of the bottleneck when it when the pressure was so high, or the stress wall stress, or it was so high on the right ventricle that it led to a passing out reflex, and then you've got people that need oxygen and have got really fast heart rate and classic signs, and you know it, and then you've got the people that come in with sudden death. So that's the wide spectrum of people that present with a with a pulmonary embolism. And there's a whole second layer, Dr. McGiffin. Um, what's your experience of people presenting with CTEF, which is the chronic version of a of the, of the pulmonary embolism. This is the ones that have kind of, what's your experience of how they present? So the, the, the spectrum of presentation of CTEF is broad um, and the diagnosis is frequently missed for a long period of time. On average, it takes four visits to a general practitioner and four visits to a specialist before the diagnosis is actually. Sorry to interrupt. Maybe you could explain what is CTEF. Oh, okay. So chronic thrombo- CTEF or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is the consequence of, of unresolved clot uh, in, uh, in the lungs after pulmonary embolus. 90, 96% of patients who have a pulmonary embolus, ultimately the patient's own clot-busting mechanisms are going to dissolve the clot. But about 4% of patients that does not happen. 
And the reasons why it doesn't happen uh, are probably um, genetic, uh, genetically based because there are some genes now that have been described associated with abnormal clotting and abnormal lytic processes, abnormal, abnormal clot busting processes. So, um, so these 4% of patients where the clot doesn't dissolve can go on to develop this CTF, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Now, it's not all quite as, as clear-cut and, and nice a distinction as that. After pulmonary embolus and treatment, there, there can be a real spectrum of, of, uh, of outcome. At one end, there can be complete resolution. Clot disappears, patient has no further symptoms, it's all done. At the other end, there can be patients with residual symptoms, so they have this post-pulmonary embolus syndrome, where they don't have residual clot, but for some reason you, they have functional limitations. And you can demonstrate that on, on uh, uh, CPET, on, chronic, uh, on uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, you can demonstrate limitations in exercise tolerance. There are patients that will have residual uh, abnormalities on uh, pulmonary angiogram or a VQ scan, but don't have CTEF, but they may be asymptomatic. And then those are a CTF. So it's not a clear distinction. I know, Dr. Bouchard, you're planning to do a, a whole uh, section on CTF, but but I did think, it's, and obviously Dr. McGiffin's an expert on this, but I did think it's important to just in the presentation talk about that because I will tell you, when people turn up with a pulmonary embolism, one thing is diagnosing the pulmonary embolism, but the treatment really is based around is this acute or is it chronic? And it's really important to 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 take both things into your thinking process, that there could be a chronic component present. That's a very good point. So um, patients uh, may present with an acute embolus, which brings to light the fact that, that they have actually uh, CTEF, uh, yeah. or the CTEF develops very, very slowly. So it's just gradual. that The patient doesn't recognise uh, initially. Gradual loss of exercise tolerance. Um, and fatigue and shortness of breath, uh, and it just—it's a progressive problem. Uh, and and when it's missed for a prolonged period of times, as it frequently happens, by the time they get to medical care, they can already have severe right heart failure, severe adverse remodeling of the right ventricle, severe pulmonary hypertension, uh, and already liver and uh, renal dysfunction. I, I will tell you, Dr. Bouchard, that. Um of the patients that are already hospitalized, there's also this large uh, population of what I'll call incidentaloma, where someone will do a CT scan. They don't 100% know why they're doing it, but they'll just get a CT scan or it will be done for something else. And I would say there's a good, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of the ones that were consulted to see inpatient are based off that. And then people are like, oh, what do we do with that? Um, we treat it? Do we not treat it? Is it causing the symptoms? Is it not causing the symptoms? So they never presented with that anything in the first place remotely to do with uh, with uh, the, these classic symptoms we're talking about. But they'll have found a clot. You know, I always wonder how many people you know have had these things. There's yeah. there's probably a larger population of people that have had them that we never know about than the uh, ones that we know about. Reminds me about one of my patients where I came in with atypical chest pain. Uh, and I did a CTA of his chest to rule out the um, aortic dissection. The patient had an aortic dissection and had pulmonary emboli at the same time. I said, you know. That is not a good combination. No. <laughs> I still remember this article in New England Journal of Medicine, the emperor has no clothes, uh, you know, with uh, describing the situation with pulmonary embolism where there could be so minimal symptoms, so atypical symptoms. could be chest pain, could be shortness of breath, and sometimes it can be so insidious presentation or the patient just not feeling good. And um, so it's very difficult to make a diagnosis. So can you walk us through, uh, Mustafa, you mentioned, you know, the D-dimer. I mean, how good is it? I mean, if if it's negative, does it rule out the pulmonary embolism? Uh, You mentioned the CTA, there's the... Venous ultrasound, the echocardiogram. What is the best test? What is your typical workup of a patient with pulmonary embolism? Okay, you know, let's start backwards here. So the ultimate test um, is a CT, a, a good quality 
CT pulmonary angiogram. And the, and the reason I'm saying that is that is a confirmatory test. Some people would argue it's um, you know, a potential player and that would be a good pulmonary angiogram uh, taken through a catheter um, where you inject dye straight through a tube into the, into the lung. But those two tests will just without doubt show you. They'll, they'll outline all the you know, branches of the lung artery and they'll show you that clot's present. So those are the cases in which we know. So if, if someone came in and said, your only job is to absolutely confirm you can get whatever test you want, you can do whatever you want, has this patient got a pulmonary embolism? You know, most, mostly we're talking CT angiogram, pulmonary angiogram. Now, the reality of life is, you know, it doesn't make sense to do a CT pulmonary angiogram with the radiation, with the expertise, with the technical costs, with all that kind of stuff. We can't just take every patient with, like with pulmonary embolism, which is one, you know, like you said, it's, it's a chameleon. I mean, it's got 30 different signs with it. So we can't take every single person that comes in because most of those people aren't going to have one. So at the beginning, very important is, a, is taking a history and listening to the details on that. And that is eliciting shortness of breath and onset, presence or not of passing out or dizziness, presence of leg swelling, which could be come later or have come as the first early manifestation, recent history of clot, and then a review of the medical history to look for the things we talked about before, which can shift you, shift your thinking towards being concerned that they have more risk factors for clot development. So once you've got that, you start to say, okay, let's go into the next step. Now, when it comes to blood tests, we... There is no perfect blood test for pulmonary embolism. One test often done uh, is called a D-dimer. What that is, is it's, it basically is a product of breakdown of clots. So if you have the large clot present um, as part of the body's process and trying to break it down, there'll be these, uh, you know, formation of this dimer, which identify that in the blood. And... The problem with the D-dimer, though, is the list of things that can cause an elevated D-dimer is just immense. You could fill pages with the amount of things that could cause that. And so the, the next step after that is, is to responsibly learn to use the D-dimer. Nothing's worse than, you know, every single person that comes and gets the D-dimer. So suddenly you're like, oh, the D-dimer is high. And so there is clinical risk scores, um, you know, PE scores and, and DVT scores and such that can aid risk stratification. So it can work out as a patient in a lower group, intermediate or high risk group. You know, PE, particularly the, the larger ones, it's important to get the diagnosis right. So something like a D-dimer, although it's very sensitive and not specific, which means it probably will catch all of them. But just because it catches all these things doesn't mean all of them have a, you know, everything it catches isn't necessarily PE. And so that does help us go on to the next stage. Um, often in patients, particularly when a P is suspected, you will get an ultrasound scan of the legs. That will look for residual formation. So a formation of a thrombus there or some residual clot there that's then traveled up to the lungs. And if you have it and it's easily available, it's very nice to get an echocardiogram, which now most emergency departments are doing at the bedside. It's part of your standard emergency department visit in a contemporary you know, emergency department is to just put a probe on and you're looking for right-sided heart strain. Another important test is the EKG heart tracing. And the most common thing you'll see on there is just a fast heart rate. But there's also some other signs and symptoms that can be associated with that. Oxygen. Is the oxygen levels low in the blood? Is the patient breathing hard and very short of breath? So that's hypoxia, respiratory failure, and heading in that direction. And, and you know, P is very important because just because someone's hypoxic and they, they're about to lose their respiratory ability to um, maintain their respiratory drive, you can't just do your usual thing, which is to put a breathing tube in them because you will almost uniformly uh, result in that person uh, losing their pulse if they've got a massive PE and you try and, and you try and uh, intubate them. And so that's important. That's still a conversation we have all the time and thankfully managed to stop it um, most of the times. And so you know, those are the main kinds of doctors. Can you think of any other tests uh, for the VQ scan, right? I mean, you can probably speak more to the VQ scan than I can. Yeah. That is another way of diagnosing acute PEs with a VQ scan. Um, no, I think you've covered it most of them. 
And then just the, the other, just the biomarkers associated, you know, troponin and. Is the VQ scan, you know, this is a question for, for the rest of you. Is the VQ scan, have you ever seen negative VQ scans due to just complete massive clot bilateral, which makes it, or do you still see patchy abnormalities in those cases? Like, can you get a balanced uh, perfusion defect? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it, but I rarely seen a pulmonary, a VQ scan anyway in acute PE because it, it, invariably the patient's had a CTPA. Yeah. You know, we use the VQ scan more, I would say, if the, re, if the patient's kidney function is absolutely terrible and, you know, the patient's relatively stable and you want to try and get an intermediate response. I will tell you something we do more commonly nowadays is if there is a ambiguity and you know you're going to go and investigate it anyway, again, you can do a pulmonary angiogram in, in the cath lab uh, and have a look. Um, this is this is a surprising amount of time you'll end up seeing a, a, a clot in there. But I think that covers most of the things that would that would look for a PE. I think so. Let's talk a little bit about the, um, as you're evaluating the patient, you're always kind of trying to evaluate your soul, the, um, the severity of the pulmonary embolus and, and the prognosis of the patient. So is it just the, uh, the clot size actually that determine the, the prognosis? Is it the impact on the right ventricle? Is it, is it the, you know, what, what is it exactly that determines the prognosis in these patients? Uh, well, I think it's all of the above, isn't it? It's uh, it's not only the size of the size of the thrombus and the amount of pulmonary circulation that you lose because of the obstruction from the clot. It's the impact of the right ventricle. You know, a, a normal right ventricle can only generate ra- around about fifty millimeters of mercury systolic. So, um, um, once you've start occluding pulmonary arteries, then you get pulmonary artery right ventricular decoupling and the RV is unable to generate enough pressure for that sort of um, increased uh, impedance to ejection and the right ventricle just fails. You know, you have these incidental pulmonary emboli and incidental findings and you have these massive and submassive, you know, pulmonary emboli and what determines, you know, their, their impact on the prognosis? Is it Mostly this right ventricular strain. Well, that is that designation of massive versus submassive, and and within the submassive there are the high risk and low risk, and there are criteria for that. Um, the the really the 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 short answer is for the massives. This is where we know there's a huge burden of thrombus uh, and the circulatory failure. I mean that's there's no sort of mystery about that. Within the submassive which is where there's, where there's still a large burden of thrombus, but there's not the accompanying circulatory failure. Um, however, there may be evidence that the right ventricle is under, uh, under, under considerable stress, and that sort of puts it into the, into the high-risk submassive. Then the low-risk uh, submassive, where there is a large burden of clot, but the right ventricle is still coping and there's no evidence of right, major right ventricular dysfunction. You know, this this has become much more important as treatment options for pulmonary embolism have grown. So, you know, if you go back to 10 and 15 years ago, there was this two thoughts on PE. That, hey, this is massive. And all that meant was your patient's about to collapse. Uh, the blood pressure is terribly low. And the one criteria they used to use was blood pressure lower than 90, which, what does that really mean? What if your blood pressure was 200, you know, an hour before and it's 90 now? But that's what the reason people had that is they wanted to say, you know, take massive PE seriously. And then a lot of work was done over the last 15 years, which really has tried to refine the risk stratification of people with PE. And so whereas we used to think of PEs as this pie chart with, you know, 95% not so massive and then 5% massive, we now have this whole situation where there is massive. And the definition of massive is you're in shock. So your, high, your systolic blood pressure is low or you've had a significant drop in your blood pressure from a higher level by X, Y, Z, you know, 30, 40, 50 points from what it always usually is. And usually that's accompanied by a very fast heart rate and increased work of breathing. But those patients are relatively easily identifiable. Other clinical signs and symptoms of shock, um, passing out, undergoing arrest, requiring medications to maintain your blood pressure, all those things put you in this 
very high risk group, the mortality, so the people that will die from that group, that's much higher than the mortality seen in a heart attack and the case fatality rate. And that's important to kind of, we need to know who those patients are. We need to treat them. And there's a number of different treatment options. The submassive is this next group. So submassive wants to find this group that, not the low risk, because the truth about low risk is you treat them um, with blood thinner and the clot resolves and they probably never get a clot again and they do fine. But then the submassive is this group which centers around the right ventricle. Really, ultimately, that's what it centers around. How does the right side of the heart handle it? And different people handle it differently. We will see, like Dr. McGiffin was saying, just massive amounts of clot. And the patient's just sitting there like nothing's going on. And we really feel we have to treat them. But sometimes we just can't justify it because we say this patient's literally ready to go home. They've got this massive clot. And then you get people with relatively large amounts of clot, but the right side of the heart's really understrained for a variety of different reasons. The heart rate's very fast. There's dizziness. There's already symptoms that prevent them walking around. They try and get up from the bed and they collapse and things like that. Those are the more high-risk submassives. But what qualifies you as a submassive? So, you know, I, I hate to make it too binary because this, there is an art form. Uh, you know, we wrote an article um, a number of years ago uh, called The Tipping Point, which really talks about what is that? tipping point for when you have to take someone that's got a relatively large clot seriously versus not. But if you've got elevated markers of damage of the heart, troponin BMP, you've got changes on your heart tracing, and you've got evidence, whether it's CT or echo-driven of thrombus, uh, you know, uh, of the right ventricle, its reaction to that clot to enlarge, to pump less well, um, and show signs of dysfunction, those those are the ones which qualify as submassive. If your right ventricle is stone cold normal, your symptoms relatively mild, you don't have elevated markers, you can give those people blood thinner. You can send them home the same day in almost all cases, and they'll be okay. We have follow-up on that validation of that treatment strategy. Submassive is where, gosh, what if I don't treat that patient? Are they going to turn into a massive the day after? Are they going to develop CTEF in the future? And I will tell you, despite a number of good trials and ongoing investigation, we do not have the answer. There's still a clinical art form and team approach required. And as we talk about a team approach, there's something called a PERT team, P-E-R-T, Pulmonary Embolism Response Team. And that is the contemporary fashion in in, uh, PE programs. Who is part of that team? Yeah, so radiologists that will look at the scans, emergency department physicians that will help triage the patient initially, general cardiologists that will come in and help do risk stratification, echo reading, echo imaging, interventional cardiologists that will be available in case ECMO is needed, in case um, interventional procedures to treat the clot are needed, and surgeons that are capable of doing embolectomy uh, to take out the clot, and lung specialists often that's cross-training ECMO and other things uh, to be available. And, you know, we and our team, we have about seven or eight members. Um, There's a a nice chain of communication that goes on each time. And it's very nice because there's a lot of insight from a lot lot of different people. You know, a simple P is easy, right? It comes in, big heart strain, we know what to do. I mean, that's not really what happens. And really what happens is, hey, we've got this patient that's come in, I mean, let me tell you about a recent one where the team approach was just unbelievable. Now, we have a patient come in with loss of feeling on the left side of their body. And a CT scan of the head demonstrates a large stroke. But the patient's also remarkably hypoxic. And a CT scan of the lung demonstrates a massive pulmonary embolism and their blood pressure is next to nothing. And so as you can imagine, all these things are going on now. So there's the neurologist being involved to talk about, gosh, how do we treat that stroke? There's a neurosurgeon involved to talk about, wanting to talk about acute treatment of the stroke. There's the interventional team involved saying, gosh, that patient's about to lose their pulse in about 30, you know, in the next however long. There's cardiovascular anesthesia involved in that process that are trying to keep the patient going. The pulmonary specialist involved, how to manage the hypoxemia and how to start agents to, to kind of prevent that. 
And then everyone else that's seen that patient until that time, the imager, the echocardiographer, the radiographer, the emergency department physician. And it's such a complex situation. In that exact case, we ended up going to the lab. We did a stroke intervention on the table with our neurosurgeons. We then closed a massive hole in the heart where a clot was trying to get across. We then went into the lungs and pulled out the clot in the lungs because we could not get blood thinner because the patient had just had a stroke intervention. And then we put the patient on ECMO because they were essentially becoming pulseless. But that it took 10 people really, really involved in the team. And uh, you know, amazingly, that patient left hospital. Yeah. We'll, we'll potentially have some CTEF issues in the future, but that's the kind of team required to even begin to get through a process like that. But then sometimes you don't need all that. You know, It's yeah, very straightforward, clear-cut situation. Go and treat the clot. Let's go ahead and, and talk about the treatment. I mean, you've mentioned, you know, f- uh, fibrinolytics, the clot-busting medication. Uh, there's the open heart where, you know, Dr. McGiffin, McGiffin goes in, removes the clot with an open chest. There are catheter-based, you know, treatment. And obviously the ECMO when the patient is, is really in dire straits and in shock. Yeah. So... Can you discuss maybe uh, some of the uh, treatment modalities that you're using? Which one, you know, do you prefer? How do we, how do we go to, um, how do we decide to go to surgery, for example, or, or use a catheter-based technique? So, um, by a long way, the mainstay of treatment for pulmonary embolisms is blood thinner, and and it's always fashionable to veer away from that, but really. It should be the mainstay of treatment is blood thinner. And in some patients that can't get a blood thinner, a course of blood thinner than other methods to kind of resolve uh, the clot being formed. But now let's go towards the bigger clots. So there is no gold standard for this. Um, I was brought up on, you know, watching Dr. McGiffin do embolectomies for this. And so that was the first foray into seeing, okay, I mean, it was amazing how much clot would come out. I mean, it's, you know, but it's it's a big deal. No matter what anyone says, going on bypass, uh, doing all that stuff, particularly for someone with a lot of comorbidities and other conditions, it can be a big deal, but it can also be potentially immediately life-saving. But, you know, since we started talking with surgery, that involves having a team that is widely available, part of the pulmonary embolism response team, has great experience with managing those patients intra-op and post-op and can get involved with the whole kind of approach towards that. That that is not a widely available thing. In my opinion, um, for surgery to be a major component of your PE team in this day and age, you really need a dynamic team that really wants to come first to the table for treatment of that. But it would almost be the larger clots. But other things that could push you towards surgery uh, inability to do catheter-based treatments, inability for long-term uh, use of clot-busting medications potentially, large amounts of clot kind of going through the heart that are seen going through in transit, a clot going from the right to the left side of the heart that's at stroke risk, and other obvious reasons for needing to go to cardiac surgery at the same time. And those things may push you in that. Again, you've got to make those decisions very quickly. Um, you probably in this day and age, particularly for a lot of the higher risk ones, you may well be on ECMO before making the decision whether to do that or not. But then there's an argument to stay on ECMO and just get blood thinner anyway. So the next thing is, you know, uh, since we mentioned ECMO, those are the really high risk, people that are about to lose their pulse or have lost their pulse. In order to stabilize things, you may or may not combine some treatments with catheters. What does that mean? That we go through the leg or the neck, put some tubes up into the lung and administer a variety of different treatments. So what are those treatments? What's become very fashionable nowadays, although we do have to be responsible and remember, in no way is this a class one perfect evidence thing, no matter what the companies try to market or or spread. And these things are spreading like wildfire throughout cardiology programs in the country. But we have these catheters, thrombolysis catheters that go up into the lung. You leave them in the lung and you run clot-busting medication at a lower dose than you usually would because the theory being you're right there in the lung and you're giving ultrasound to help to help break down the thrombus. But those are very commonly used, these ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis catheters, USAT, USAT. And I think the reason they're used is because it's protocol-driven. It's very easy to administer. 
there's some relatively small data. I mean, if you compare this to other major treatments in the cardiac field, again, the data is small. This is not the gold standard, even though it's accepted as the gold standard. But many people, really what happens is you used to have teams of cardiologists that will come and do heart attacks. Suddenly having teams of cardiologists that will say, oh, we'll put the catheter in the lung. And as an interventionist, you feel it's something, oh, I can do that. So that's one of the treatments. Um, there's mechanical treatment. So we talked about thrombolysis, which is where the clot is broken down. There's also mechanical treatments where you go in and um, you break apart the clot that's already in the lung by a number of different things. What's commonly done now, you know, the, there's, there's a variety of things such as the suction catheters and uh, even uh, pulse spray catheters, which can break the thrombus down. But I will tell you, um, they can be useful if you're in a massive situation and you feel that's the that can get you out of trouble and get your blood pressure more balanced quickly. But to treat all submasses like that, they may be more toxic than they are helpful. We don't know the downstream effects of spraying uh, that thrombus distally. We, we don't 100% know that. And now, uh, more recently, there's large bore suction catheters. It's where we take really large tubes, put them in the lung, put them next to the clot, and just basically try and pull the clot out. They can be useful if there's clots in the heart that's easily visible. And there's a growing trend towards um, this thrombectomy. Um, you know, the advantage of that, there's ongoing trials and registries looking at that. They are approved systems to do that. But, the, you know, the writing is still... You know, the, the the proof is still to be determined on those things as we look at those. They are effective uh, in producing pretty pictures that you can post online and say, hey, look, look at all this clock we got out. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily translate into a safe, effective long-term treatment, but we'll see what they show. Um, but the advantage of those is you can use those in situations such as the case I talked about before, where we can't even give blood thinning medication. So we have to go and try and get as much clot out, restore the situation without giving blood thinning. So it's important to have a number of tools spanning that whole spectrum, everything from ability to go on advanced support, such as ECMO, ability to have cardiac surgery, ability to use a number of different catheters, uh, based approaches within the lung, the ability to you know, use thrombolysis. And then there's a good old-fashioned treatment, which is take some clot-busting medicine, give it in the vein, and see what happens. And really, you know, that was a treatment from like 1960 to 19, you know, 2000 and, and the early 2000s where that was what was used. I mean, the whole decision-making tree was based around should we use clot-busting medicine or not? Uh, we still, there still is potentially a role for that where the other stuff's not available, but that's going out of fashion, I would say. I guess it's always a concern of intracranial bleed and uh, the patient who's, you know, post the surgery. Uh, which a lot of these, you know, patients are post-op, and and it's a problem, obviously. Um, so um, that that's very comprehensive, you know, treatment. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, the first treatment for most patients is the anticoagulation. I mean, um, we have the heparin or the Levinox. We have like the warfarin and the uh, and the factor ten inhibitors, as well as antithrombin. What is the main, uh, you know, stay of anticoagulation treatment in patients with pulmonary emboli, and how long do we treat them now? The mainstay now, you know, Coumadin, Warfarin, which was used for decades, is now falling out of fashion. That's really only used in people that either can't get access to, can't afford, or have a reason not to take the other medications. For example, they have a mechanical heart valve. They, uh, you know, have tried the other medications, or they just don't want to change from Coumadin. They're on Coumadin already. It was just less therapeutic. The problem with Coumadin is, you know, it's measured. You rely on uh, its effectiveness and uh, blood levels, and they can change from week to week. And in some people, it can go too low, go too high. You have to go and get blood tests. You have to have that monitored. And so no one really wants to take that. Um, then there's these blood thinners, um, which were developed a, a number of years ago, which are the mainstay of treatment. The good news about those blood thinners and PE is they're well-studied and validated across large studies now. Um, even the same-day treatment to PE, you can, whereas in the, you know, before we would have to give heparin. Now, if you have a small PE, you don't, do, you don't have to do that. You can just start a low dose, you can just start a higher dose for one day or two days, and then the normal dose of the blood thinning medications, you know, such as Eliquis, Xarelto, 
Prodexa, uh, uh, some other ones. Um, the, you know, the advantage of those is um, you don't have to monitor the blood levels. They're relatively uniformly effective. They can be taken in tablet form without, um, you know, as long as the patient's compliant with the tablet, um, it's going to be working. Um, some are once a day, some are twice a day. Um, but those are the mainstay of the treatment now. There is some evidence, you know, not, uh, not stunning evidence, but there is some evidence that in patients with cancer, you know, the use of Lovenox, the injectable blood thinner, may be more effective over the long term. But um, again, that comes down to practicality, whether they want to inject every day, the availability and cost of that, uh, and the patient having to keep that at home, you know, in their fridge and, and do all that stuff. And risk benefit is unknown, but sometimes you have cases where one will fail and you'll escalate to another kind of uh, a therapy on that. But those are the mainstay. I guess we should mention vena cava filter. So the vena cava filter is uh, something that was very fashionable in medicine. It's basically, you know, in fact, even before that, if we go back, the original surgical treatment of this, I believe, was to just tie off the vena cava, which is the big vessel that comes from the leg. And they tie that off because they say, okay, look, no clock can get up now. This is great. So the clock can form, but it can't get up. I mean, that seems relatively barbaric. But uh, what's the name of that operation, Dr. McGuffin? Uh, I'm I'm not sure if there's a name, an eponymic name associated with ligating the uh, IVC, but there is an eponymic name associated with the uh, um, um, removal of a pulmonary embolus without cataplomy bypass. That's the Trendelenburg operation. Trendelenburg. Yeah, so that's 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 removing that that that's how surgery for pulmonary embolus, massive pulmonary embolus, started with the Trendelenburg operation. So that simply meant opening the chest. Um, and then uh, clamping the inflow, so you clamp the IVC, the SVC, so no blood's going through the heart, open the pulmonary artery and then just grab at it whatever you can. You know, it was just smash and grab. Um, and the, the, the original Trendelenburg operation, nobody survived it. I'm sure the survival rate of that operation is incredibly low, but, but of course, all the spectacular saves yeah. are the ones that everybody reads about, but, you know, the vast majority were never successful. Uh, so just for a second, if we talk about uh, surgery, as Mustafa said, um, there are all these options. These, there's fibrolytic therapy and interventional therapy and surgical therapy. And really, to a large extent, it's, it's um, programmatically driven. Um, if, there's a, if there's a program that's sort of wedded to interventional uh, techniques, then that's what the institution, that's what the institution will do because that's where all their experience is. And same with surgery. So, I mean, surgical therapy is very effective, particularly with cardiopulmonary bypass and stop the heart and get in there like you're doing a pulmonary endarterectomy for CTEF. You can sort of really get a thorough clearance of both lungs. But as Mustafa pointed out, for people with comorbid disease, and remember, pulmonary, emboli is, pulmonary embolism is a disease of comorbidity, really. Um, a lot of these patients may not be ideal candidates for surgery uh, and that's where all these interventional procedures uh, have um, found a real place for the management of these patients yeah. so uh, you know we were talking about that vena cava filter so these were yes these were put in way too much so these are the most overused oh, yes, things absolutely <laughs> yes yes and and we used when when we did uh, when we um when I started doing pulmonary endarterectomies for CTEF, everybody would get an IVC filter. Um, we don't do it at all now. Oh, we wow. never put them in. Even in even uh, massive unprovoked uh, emboli, we still don't put them in now uh, because of just there's some you know major long term problems. If you do put one in, it should be one that's removable. Now yeah. there is still a place for removable IVC filters, but it'd be they're being used less and less now. Yes, and, and, and that's where that team approach comes in nicely. You know, the, you, you may use a filter if there's a large mobile clot in the iliac, you know, the larger veins of the leg that looks imminent in terms of about to go. Yes. You know, and but even now, I'll tell you, there's a bunch of, there's a whole field of DVT intervention for that now as well. So it's, it's but, the, but the use, the, you know, the inferior vena care filter does have a place. It's a small, small place. It needs to be used responsibly. And anyone that gets one absolutely must be followed up. And the discussion at 
you know, one, two, three months after is, should we, there always needs to be an on, ongoing discussion about when does this thing come out? When should this thing come out? Very, very few people, you know, would need them, would need them lifelong. And so it's definitely worth, worth discussing that also. Well, very important uh, points, particularly with the IVC filters. Um, and, um, you know, there's some patients that cannot undergo anticoagulation because they're post-op or they're bleeding. Uh, and you have an imminent, you know, thrombus uh, that obviously could cause a lot of damage in the lungs. It's good that we have at least the uh, the, the newer uh, oral anticoagulants. I mean, they work right away, and that's a big advantage compared to warfarin, where you have to wait, you know, several days. Uh, their their effect is immediate, but again, it's mostly they're there to prevent the propagation of a clot, as well as. Uh, you know, a clot from getting, you know, bigger or new clots to form. Um, either the body does its own lysis of the clot or, or we help it with medication. Uh, for most people, <clears throat> that's all they're going to need is, um, you know, a medication that will work right away and, and do the job. Uh, there's even some uh, new studies now in patients with cancer uh, that, um, you know, comparing with um Levinox and uh, results in, in newer anticoagulation, the factor 10 inhibitors, and it looks very promising. It looks like, you know, the uh, heparin and, and, and the Levinox may be something of the past. Very, uh, we, we, what we want to do is we want to prevent. We know that there is a patient, you know, that there are certain risk factors. I know, Mustafa, you, you've mentioned a few, you know, already. Uh, you mentioned the contraceptive um, Pregnancy, post-op, patients with cancer, and age. I mean, as we get older, uh, factors like obesity. So it's very important to manage those risk factors and, and try to preventing other, you know, clots to form. And there's some patients that have some inherited clotting conditions. Do you want to mention a few of those and, and maybe certain blood disorders that, you know, maybe we should discuss? Well, certainly, in, in, there are hypercoagulable disorders that have been described that are associated with the development of CTEF and presumably, with, obviously, with polyemboli. Uh, but in patients that ultimately develop CTEF, you only ever find a, a known hypercoagulable disorder in about 10 to 20% of patients. Now, that probably means, though, that there are, uh, there are hypercoagulable disorders where the genetic basis has not yet been uh, found. But anyway, the protein CNS, the um, thrombin mutation, uh, one really bad one is the antiphosyl lipid syndrome. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a really, um, that, that's a nasty disease. Um, and um, they may or may not have lupus, but they have antiphosyl lipid syndrome. Uh, and that's, that is a, that's a particularly aggressive hypercoagulable disorder. So we do see patients with hyper with uh, CTEF, who, um, who the basis of it is uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. Uh, factor V Leiden deficiency, that's another one that we'll, we'll uh, occasionally see when a patient develops CTEF. I think these are particularly important when the, the pulmonary emboli has not had any, um, it's unprovoked. It means there hasn't been any surgeries. You know, someone ends up with a DVT and pulmonary emboli with no particular reason. You really have to wonder. Is there an, an inherited, you know, um, clotting condition or a blood disorder? You know, certainly patients with polycythemia and patients with obesity and sleep apnea. Um, you know, we've had the patients also with this low T syndrome, you know, that they keep getting the testosterone, you know, replacement. It ends up, you know, end up with a very high counts of red blood cells and hypercoagulability. And tendency to form clots. We've seen some of these patients presenting with myocardial infarction or sometimes uh, with DVT or pulmonary emboli. So we really have to be, you know, mindful, particularly when it's an unprovoked you know, pulmonary emboli. Any new research in the field of um, PTE or, or PE? Yeah, you know, there's been an explosion of uh, devices available uh, for this. There's, there's two kind of fields going on right now in parallel. One is the movement to say we really don't need to be as interventional as we think uh, with a lot of these. You know, some of the great studies that I really think need to be done or, or 
maybe ongoing is what happens if we just give very low dose thrombolysis through a peripheral catheter, so like an IV? What happens if you just give one milligram? You know, the half time after a couple of circulations should that should uh, be you know able to be therapeutic. And so that's one of the fields is does does it matter where you deliver? Right now the thought is if you deliver this into the lungs, it may be more effective, but is that real or not? Can we actually indeed give a much lower dose of thrombolysis through there? Um, other ongoing factors are other ultrasound systems looking at uh, dissolving and dissipating clot, um, larger suction catheters, which can basically go in and just suck large amounts of thrombus out of the lungs uh, through catheters. There's been recent development of a, of a, a large, a large ball system where you can, again, just put a, what we call a 24 French large tube up into the, the lungs, bigger than we ever imagined we would have done before, um, and just start, see how effective it is. You just basically pull negative on it and see, see if that can suction anything out. And so there's been, there's a lot of uh, technologic advances in how to take the thrombus out. The armamentarium is a, uh, growing by the year the evidence base um is not you know growing as fast as that you know and then the other question which no one 100 knows the answer to in terms of long-term follow-up is say we did take all submassive PEs and just left them alone um gave some blood thinner brought them back in five years or ten years and then say we took another massive group of submassive PEs and did interventional procedures on them at the 10-year point how many people have developed CTEF? How many people have developed the chronic sequel of recurrent and uh, persistent thromboembolism? And that's a little, it's known now at one, two, maybe three, four years. But this is why it's so important to, to identify the high risk population. What we do know, those of us that practice this clinically at a high volume, is that the, the number of large, dangerous, life-threatening PEs is, is becoming more and more evident. The, the ones that we think need treatment are increasing, likely due to increased recognition and teams that allow these now to be treated in a more streamlined fashion. These are things that we also see, that, you know, the fact that specialist surgeons like Dr. McGeffin around that specialize in CTEF operations, you know, is that as the data goes on and on, what percentage of those could have been prevented if we were much more aggressive with treatment early on? and identifying those. And so there still needs to be work done with the risk ratification of PEs. That submassive group that, that basically takes a large portion of the pie chart. So remember, there's the non-significant ones, there's the submassive ones and the massive. The submassive, you know, we need to really work on refining that. A number of studies and registries are looking at that. How can we pick out the ones in submassive that we can help effectively with an aggressive treatment strategy? And that'll be the next 10 years. Um, unfortunately, a few years ago, there were some trials done with thrombolysis, uh, PATHO and, and the follow-up of PATHO. And we were all thinking there's this amazing answer going to come out of these. And suddenly we're all going to have to treat all of them or treat none of them. And really it was a little bit, it was great data, but it was almost a status quo. It was like, you know, you might get a benefit, but you might get a bit more bleeding. And so what happens if you take a very similar population to PFOS, a large multi-center randomized uh, trial, but you apply what is considered to be safer interventional methods of either thrombolysis or other? What happens to those patients over 10 years? But that's such a huge undertaking. I don't know if we'll ever see that done or, or certainly not in the next five to 10 years, but those are the, those are the ex- exciting areas for people currently in the field to try and get involved in. Well, I think that will uh, lead us into the future discussion of some of the um, repercussion of pulmonary emboli and maybe some of the residual effect. But I think we have to say that the technology has advanced um, tremendously. And we've seen so many, so many patients that have been saved by these new techniques, um, you know, talking about the catheter, Base talking about the surgeries, so I, I think there there's a lot of new developments that has happened uh, with the invasive techniques, as well as the newer anticoagulants, and um, it's been really we've made some great progress uh, in the treatment of pulmonary emboli. 
So I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dr. McGiffin and uh, thank Dr. Uh, Mustafa Ahmed. I look forward to uh, further discussion on the, um, some of the chronic repercussion of pulmonary emboli, and particularly what we've mentioned today, the CTEP. Thank you, gentlemen. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.